Well, this morning, I'm hoping that we'll finish uh, Ephesians chapter four. You know, we started chapter four right after Christmas, and now it's almost Easter, and I think we may finish today. Um, Paul is painting this incredible picture, and so I've included some accoutrements of our past sermon, sermons to, to help you r- remember. Uh, empty earthen vessel, an earthen vessel full of earth, and an earthen vessel full of, of blood or life or, or wine, and of course our PVC Frankenchrist that we constructed out of earthen vessels brought together in order to circulate the blood. Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to preach this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us to believe. I don't know that we can really understand, but we can believe because of you. And so this morning, Lord God, would you help us to believe the things in Scripture? Um, They're utterly astounding to me, Lord God. And so I'm saying this as the preacher. I believe, but help my unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, why'd you come to church this morning? Don't, don't answer out loud, because it could be embarrassing. But just in, in your heart, answer that, that question. Why did you come to church? Now, we may have all sorts of spiritual jargon that we use in answering that question. But under it all, isn't there this realization that something's terribly wrong with this world? And then you think to yourself, and, and maybe it's me. And so I um, need some information in order that I could fix me. So you come to church hoping to get some knowledge of good and and evil so you can judge yourself and hopefully redeem yourself and make yourself in the image of God. In in other words, you you come to church in order to look into a mirror like, like this mirror and, you know, see, see how you're doing. come to church to look in a mirror. I often come to church to preach a sermon and see how I'm doing. And you become my mirror. I make you my mirror. And so church uh, is our mirror. The the Bible is our mirror. Uh, We use the word as our mirror in order to take knowledge of good and evil and apply it to our lives. So let's give it a whirl. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, this is the text we looked at last week. Therefore, having put away, literally, the false, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, the accuser. It means the accuser. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Give the thief a job, in other words. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, it's a, it's a mirror. Paul is saying speak truth, incarnate love, give grace, forgive as God and Christ forgave you. See, it's, it's knowledge, right? It's knowledge of good and, and evil, and, and I can use it to simply point out our good and evil. How we lie, for instance, and, and love lies, and all the ways we assist the devil, the accuser, how we don't love, how you don't love. 
Don't give grace. Don't even begin to forgive as God in Christ forgave you. In fact, I, I could use it. I, I, in using it, I can make you so insecure uh, with the knowledge of good and evil that you might just start to like hide yourself in fig leaves. Not only speaking lies, but becoming lies, like an actor playing a part. We could get so self-conscious, we couldn't even see one another, let alone love one another. In fact, we'd start accusing and slandering one another in order to feel better about ourselves. So insecure, self-conscious, so, so ashamed, we couldn't give grace because we wouldn't really even believe in grace. We couldn't forgive because we wouldn't believe that we were forgiven. You see, we could take knowledge of good and evil in such a way that it would make us evil. And to fix me with me is just more of myself. Like an earthen vessel full of earth or a, a body part that's been cut off and is entirely alone. H.A. Williams wrote this. When I attempt to make myself virtuous, the me I can thus organize and discipline is no more than the me of which I am aware. And it is precisely the equation of my total self with this one small part of myself, which is the root cause of all sin. There is a sort of devilish perversity in this organizing me not to sin by means of the very thing which ensures that I shall, a devilish perversity. And you know, when I think about it, when we think about it, isn't that what the devil does? He tempts me to take knowledge of good and evil in order to fix me, complete me, make me in the image of God. Genesis 3, 3, the serpent said to the woman, dying, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the, the tree is good, right? God, God made the tree. The knowledge of good and evil is good. In other words, the law is good, right? And the desire to, to be in the image of God is good, right? Because it was God himself who said, let us make man in our own image and, and likeness, right? And yet Eve's desire to make herself in the image of God with the knowledge of good and evil is Sin is original sin, the heart of sin. And dang, I mean, I mean, it sounds just like religion. All religion, and not just religion, but like all human effort, all human striving, judging ourselves to save ourselves, redeem ourselves, and create ourselves. In my favorite novel of all time, sci-fi novel, Paralandra by, by C.S. Lewis, the devil in the body of the unman tempts the brand new Eve on the brand new planet Venus. She's beautiful, naked, green, and exceedingly happy until the devil holds up a mirror. And then Lewis writes this. Oh, she cried. What is it? I saw a face. Only your own face, beautiful one, said the young man. I, I know, said the lady, still averting her eyes from the mirror. My face out there looking at, at me. I, I feel like m my heart is beating too hard. I'm not warm. What is it? It's called fear, said the young man. Things being two when they are one, replied the lady decisively. That thing, and she pointed at the mirror, is me and not me. You know, we look in a mirror to project an image. 
We look in a mirror to judge ourselves and create ourselves. But the more we try to project an image of ourselves, the less we are ourselves and the less we are the image of God. It's a devilish perversity, a deceitful desire. So even old Adam took the fruit and did not create the image of God, but created something more like the shadow of the image of God. A lie about the image of God. A false image of God. Ephesians 4.25 begins, therefore, having put away the false. The false what? No, not falsehood. It doesn't say falsehood, but putting away the false. And what is the, the therefore, therefore? It's therefore, the verses immediately preceding verse 25, Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. But, but that is not the way you learn Christ, says Paul. Remember talking about the unbelievers, the, the, the Gentiles. Assuming that you have heard, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, literally old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, literally new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away the false, speak truth, live love, give grace, forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Verse 21, assuming that you heard about him. The, the, new, the new man, the new Adam, assuming you heard. You know, I grew up in church and I got mostly A's in seminary and, and even there I'm not sure that, that I heard. I mean, maybe, maybe I, I read a little in old devotionals that, that no one took very seriously I suspect I, I didn't hear much because few believed it much. It often gets translated out in modern versions, but Paul is explicit here, and in Romans 5 and 6 and 1 Corinthians 15, he's, he's explicit, Colossians 3, explicit and implicit in all of, of his letters. Paul teaches that I, whatever I am, he teaches that, that, that I, I have two me's. You know, I observes me. And he teaches that I have two me's. An old self and a new self. An old me and a new me. An old man and a new man. An old Adam and a new Adam. And eschatos Adam. Now we didn't call him the the old Adam or the, the old man, but we certainly talked about the old man because we were always trying to improve the old man, fix the, the old man, patch him up, dress him up, psych him up to look like the new man, the image of God. But, but you see, when I try to serve the old man, according to Paul, when, when, when I try to save the old man, I just corrupt the old man through deceitful desire, a deceitful epithumia, deceitful lust. Well, the old man, I think, is the me that I think I create. But Paul says that there's another me that's already been created in true righteousness and true holiness, the true image of God. Well, if in my mind, the spirit of my mind, I reckon or I consider, I think, that me, myself, has already been perfectly created, maybe I'd stop trying to create me with me, which is deceitful desire, the original sin. Maybe, maybe I'd stop. Assuming that I had heard and believed that there is a new and perfect me already created. 
Maybe you've heard, but you struggle to believe. Modern man struggles to believe, especially modern man. Many historians argue that the modern era began in the 17th century when Rene Descartes doubted everything and then said, I think, therefore I am. Modern thinking begins with me and my judgment. It starts with psychologos and works towards theologos. Biblical thinking starts with theologos and works towards psychology, psychologos. Literally, uh, this is what we believe, what the Bible believes. God thinks, and therefore, I am. Theologos, and therefore, psychologos. You know, my daughter told me that they now know, I guess this is true, they, they learned how Rene Descartes died. Did, did you know this? Um, he went to a coffee shop and he ordered some coffee and the waitress said, would you like cream with that? And Rene Descartes said, I think not. And he was not. <laughs> I think therefore I am. Anyway, you can think about that for a while. If God, who is I am, ever stopped thinking, ever stopped speaking, if there was no theologos, there would be no psychologos, no psychology. In fact, there'd be no creation. There'd be no space and time. Well, since the modern man exists in space and time, and because his thinking starts with himself, modern men have argued that space and time is all that there is. Ancient philosophers, by the way, like Plato, didn't talk that way. And the Bible doesn't talk that way. It talks about spiritual things not imprisoned in space. And eternal things not imprisoned in time. Modern people think spiritual things and eternal things are really no things called metaphors. But the Bible doesn't talk that way. In fact, scientists no longer talk that way because that way they argue is an illusion. Albert Einstein said this, the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. That would mean that the distinction between your current self and your future self is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. The distinction between your unfinished self and your finished self is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Ephesians 2.5, Paul wrote this, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us, seated us, past tense, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He seated us, we're already in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, and so we say, nice metaphor, Paul. Nice metaphor. But I'm not in heaven. I'm not in the future. I'm right here, right now, nice metaphor. But I think the Apostle Paul and Albert Einstein would say, it's not a metaphor. And actually, you yourself, imprisoned in space and time, you yourself, imprisoned, are, you are a stubbornly persistent illusion. Like a false self, a shadow self, a lie about your true self. Ephesians 5.8, Paul writes, at one time you were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. According to Einstein, if you travel at the speed of light, all time is present to you in an eternal now. And not that time lasts forever, but forever is, is, is now. Uh, scientists say a photon of light does not exist in time, and so the photon never ages. It's more like time exists in a photon of light. It's, it's eternal, and scripture says God is light. And you 
are becoming light and being filled with eternal life as you walk with him, as you travel with him, eternal life. Well, the modern man, the modern mind, doesn't believe in eternity. That mind never has been biblical, and, and now it's not even scientific. The modern mind thinks that space and time are all that, that there is and that time is endless. So it, it pictures time like this, an endless line, an endless timeline, but, but the biblical mind and now the scientific mind pictures time like this. It has a beginning and it has an end, and space and time are not all that is. So eternity is not endless time. Eternity is categorically different than time, and yet it embraces time, gives birth to space and time, then fills space and time with meaning, which is itself. Karl Barth writes this. To say that God is eternal means that God is the one who is and rules before time, in time, and again after time. The one who is not conditioned by time, but conditions time absolutely in his freedom. God is uncreated and eternal. God is I am that I am. God's spirit is eternal, and God's word is eternal. Logos and meaning, reason, are eternal, which means Jesus is eternal. He's the beginning and the end. God is light, and Jesus is the light of the world. God is love. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and God is good. You know, the modern mind thinks that things like love and the good are nothing. When in fact they are the foundation and uh, cause of everything. Not nothing, but everything. Literally the creator of everything. And now think about that old man, about my old man. He lives in space on this timeline where he, he, he takes knowledge of the good, trying to make himself good, but only crucifies the good, making himself bad. Do you see how profoundly arrogant he is? I mean, just look at, that, look at that big head up there. Do you see how profoundly arrogant he is? I mean, to think that I could make myself truthful or loving, or good, when Jesus is the truth, and God is love, and he alone is good. I can't make love. <laughs> but maybe love could make me. I can't create myself in God's image, but, but, but what if God created me in his own image? And so then I spoke truth because I'm filled with truth. So then I, I loved because um, I've uh, been filled with love. I gave grace because he filled me with grace. I, I forgave because I've been forgiven. I bled for others because he bled for me and is bleeding into me. Well, uh, that truth, that love, that life in me, what would that be? Well, well then that would be God alive in me, eternity in me, and that me would be eternal. Which means that me would not be stuck in time or conditioned by time, but would in fact condition time like an idea in a creator's mind conditions how the idea is created in time. So perhaps there is an eternal me. And that me is in Christ. You know, Paul has been telling us that we are his body. 
You know, the identity of every part of my body is me, all of me. And every vessel in my body bears my blood, all my blood, flowing through me like, like a river. And every cell is marked with the same mark, my DNA, the mark of all of me, not, not some of me. The, the, the new man is a new me, and the new man is Jesus, and that new man is eternal. He isn't conditioned by time, he conditions all of time. He is the logos, the idea in the creator's mind. In fact, the word that he speaks to create time and fill all of time with himself. Scripture says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet the very same book of of the Bible says, says this as well. He learned obedience through what? He suffered. I think that means Jesus is eternal, but Jesus was revealed in time, even made or perfected in time. He was finished in time. Next slide. On a tree, in a garden, on the sixth day, as he cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. He was raised in an eternal and incorruptible body, a a spiritual body, a body that could walk through walls and did not age, a, a spiritual body, not less real than a physical body, but more real. You know, modern theology speculates about his pre incarnate body as opposed to his post incarnate body. But if he's eternal, I mean, if he really is the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't his pre-incarnate body the very same as his post-incarnate body? I mean, isn't his body eternal? And are we not his body? And just as Paul wrote in in Ephesians 1-4, God chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. So maybe you are being made and revealed in time, and yet you already exist in eternity. Now, I, I don't think that I or Albert Einstein or Karl Barth or, or even St. Paul can fully understand that or explain that. But Paul's not asking us to understand it. He's asking us to believe it. He wants you to believe that you were chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the cosmos, Ephesians 1.4. And although you were dead in space and time, Ephesians 2.1, you are seated in the heavenly places with God in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. For in fact, you are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. So although you have an old self, Ephesians 4.22, uh, t- uh, you also have a new self, a, a new man, Ephesians 4, 24, already created in true righteousness and holiness, the perfect image of the invisible God. It's imperative that you believe he exists, that the new man exists, that he's already been created. So you stop trying to create the old man by trying to create the new man. It's imperative that you believe he already exists so you can take the old man off and put the new man on. So if you feel like an empty earthen vessel, or if you feel like a vessel, an earthen vessel full of yourself, full of earth, longing to be filled with life, Paul is not saying that this might happen or that this could happen. He's saying this has already happened and it must happen in space and time. If you feel lonely, if you feel cut off, if you feel like a body part that's been separated, if you feel like a body part that's dead, separated from the body to which it belongs, Paul is not saying that this 
might happen. He's saying this has already happened and it must happen in space and time. In the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the end has happened and is happening in time. His glory is being revealed in time. His glory is being revealed in you. And so the old man. The old man is the man I think I create. The new man is the man that God has created. The old man is my judgment, my choice. The new man is God's judgment, God's choice. The old man is temporal. The new man is eternal. The old man is corrupted with deceitful desire, deceitful lust. I want, I need, I take. The old man lusts for himself and the old man is alone. But the new man uh, is filled with God's desire, God's lust. Do you know Jesus lusted? That's what Luke says in, in Luke twenty two fifteen. 15. Jesus literally says, in lust, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you. Jesus lusts for communion. He lusts for communion and the old man is alone. The old man is a slave. The new man is free. The old man is dead. The new man is dead to death which means he's eternally alive. The old man is made of flesh. The new man is made of spirit. The old man's a vessel of wrath. The new man is a vessel of mercy. The old man is exposed and condemned at the cross. The new man is revealed and created at the cross. The old man is darkness. The new man is light. The old man is meaning less time, and the new man is meaning full time. The old man is an empty space where the new man is created and revealed. The old man is like a shadow cast by the new. The old man is sin that's set for the revelation of grace. The old man is the product of a lie about you. And the new man is the truth that is you. Romans 5.14. Adam, writes Paul, was a tupas. A, a type. The word means imprint, like the imprint left by something else when you, when you smack it. Adam was an imprint of the one who was to come and already came, I guess, because he left an imprint. Adam means man. Adam is, is you. Adam is me. Adam is us. And Paul goes on in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Speaking about Adam's sin. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Karl Barth writes this, therefore, the status of Adam is lower than the status of Christ. The sin of Adam counts for far less than the righteousness of Christ. So also the relationship of the many to Adam is less significant than their other relationship to Christ. Our relationship to Adam is a subordinate relationship because the guilt and punishment we incur in Adam have no independent reality of their own but are only the dark shadows of the grace and life we find in Christ. So, so do, do you see what St. Paul and Karl Barth are, are saying? They're saying that the thing that is most true about you is Jesus Christ, not Adam. It's not the you that you think you have created, but Jesus. That means Jesus is your mirror. 
And in case you say, well, oh, yeah, right, okay, great, you're a pastor and everything. Sure, maybe he's your mirror, but, but I don't think he's my mirror. Well, I remind you of what Paul just said. The many made sinners are the many made righteous. 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die. If you died in Adam, listen close, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so Karl Barth goes on, he writes this. We have come to Christ as believers and Christians because we had already come from Christ so that there was nothing else for us to do but believe in him. What is Christian is secretly but fundamentally identical with what is universally human. You see, we all come from Christ, and we all belong to Christ, and we must all return uh, to Christ. Uh, For a time, you can hide yourself in fig leaves. For a time, you can hide yourself in outer darkness. For a time, you can hide your soul in hell but all must come to his throne. All must come to see, all must come to truly see who they are, who they eternally are, who Jesus is. That blows my mind. Julian of Norwich had a vision and she wrote this regarding her vision. She wrote, and in spite of all our feelings, our weal and our woe, I don't know exactly what weal and woe are, but that's what she says. And in spite of all our feelings, God wants us to understand and believe that we are more truly in heaven than on earth. He wants us to believe. And yet you know it is really a struggle to believe, isn't it? It's a struggle to believe. Maybe that's because the devil does not want us to believe. And why does he not want us to believe? Because if we don't believe, we're trapped. In space and time, we're trapped in hell. But God wants us to believe. Paul wants us to believe. I want us to believe that we have a new man. So we'll stop creating the old man. Put off the old man and put on the new man. Paul doesn't say punish the old man. He doesn't say fix the old man. He doesn't say go to war with the old man. He doesn't even say you renounce that old man. He he just says take him off. In Romans, he goes on to say it this way, Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 11. So you also must consider, you must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, once you see it's a corpse, you get rid of the corpse. I remember sitting with my dad's corpse after he died. And and I'm so glad I did, because I remember just thinking, we need to get rid of this thing. (laughs) It's dead. Dad's not here. It's dead. The body of sin may look alive for a time, but it's already dead. And it's been brought to nothing at the cross. It's been brought to nothing, so don't act like it's something. You don't need to justify the self. You don't need to defend the self, be ashamed of the self. You don't need to make up for the self. You don't need to hide the self. You don't need to exert the self. You certainly don't need to fix the self. Just lose yourself. Christ has made it nothing. He bore it to destruction in his body on the tree. So don't give power to the lie by listening to the lie. Don't give power to the darkness. Just see it for what it is. It's it's no thing. The light exposes it as no thing, as nothing. The life exposes it as death. And and then you see, the devil has uh, nothing to accuse and no one to slander. If there's no me that I think I need to defend, the devil has lost his game. What's wrong with me is me. And I freely confess me. And what's right with me is him, and he, well, he needs no defense. I'm free. So Paul writes, put off the old man and put on the new. Uh, The me I thought I created is the old man, and the new man is Jesus. Jesus is my mirror. 
I'm to put him on. I'm to be dressed in him. We'll see that as we go on in, in Ephesians. See, this is the wild thing. Jesus actually is my mirror. The word is a mirror, but not just a dead mirror. A living mirror. Uh, not just law, but a person. If I lust for law, I crucify a person. The good is a person. If I take his life and try to apply his life to my life as a law, a dead law, I desecrate his person and uncreate myself. But if I receive his life and know him as a person, in other words, if I commune with life, I give birth to life. The book of James refers to the law as a mirror. We look in the mirror, James says, and see our own face. And then he writes this. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of freedom, and perseveres, writes James, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts is happy in his doing, blessed in his doing. When we come to the cross and see Jesus has died, what do we see? We see that we are evil. And Jesus is the good. But when we persevere at the cross, we see Jesus has risen. We look in his eyes and we see that God is good and God has made us good. He's given us his life. In the Old Testament, God tells his people that they are the apple of his eye. The word in Hebrew is ishon. Barry Brown pointed this out to me years ago, that, that Ishon actually doesn't mean pupil, where it's used, but Ishon is little Ish, or little man. And so God says, you are the little man in my eye. When you look at somebody in the face and you stare in their eyes, you'll see the reflection of a little man in their pupil. The little man is, is you. See, you are the little man in God's eyes. Your father's eyes. His eyes are your mirror, and his eyes are Christ's eyes. We've seen the glory of God shining in the face of Christ, writes Paul. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, said Jesus. Looking in his eyes, in Christ's eyes, you see who you truly are. I think we're only beginning to see. And yet, I already know this. You are his treasure. You are his blood. In the movie Blood Diamond, rebels raid this village in Sierra Leone, Africa, and they capture a little boy named Dia. They take him into slavery. They put him to work in a, in a diamond mine, train him as one of their rebel soldiers, and so they, they brainwash him. They tell him that he has no father, that his father's dead. They tell him he has no father, which, which is a lie. They make him do terrible things, and so Dia begins to create a terrible man. Well, his father, whose name is Solomon, loves Dia and searches long for Dia. He teams up with a diamond hunter, agreeing to help him retrieve a rare red diamond from the earth. If he'll help Solomon retrieve his blood diamond, Dia, from the power of darkness, the, the warlord who has enslaved him. Well, they find Dia, and now in this scene, they find the diamond, but Dia no longer knows who Dia is. Well, this is how you put off the old man and put on the new. Have you got it, huh? Yeah, it's got it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Solomon. Dia. What are you doing? Dia. Young Bay. Young Bay. What are you doing? Bella Diavanti of the Proud Mende tribe. Thank you.
good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Yanda. And did you, baby? Wait for you, and Babu, the wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. That's how you put off the old man and put on the new. You look into your father's eyes and you persevere as you listen to his word. He knows who you are. So this, this is not your mirror. This is your mirror. We hold a gun to his head. We even pull the trigger and he speaks his word. I am your father and you are my son. You are my daughter and you will come home with me and you will be my son, you will be my daughter. I know that they've made you do terrible things. I know that they've made you do bad things. But you are not a bad boy. You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. We hold a gun to his head. We pull the trigger and he speaks his word. This is my body given to you. Take and eat. This is my blood. This uh, cup is my blood of the covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take, eat, and drink. You are my flesh and you are my blood. And this is why we come to church. Not to fix ourselves, but to lose ourselves and to put on the new man. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and put him on. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. Come to the table and believe who you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to just picture yourself as a, as a child, because that's what you are. Maybe, maybe you're the age of Dia in, in that movie clip, and you're standing before the throne And you realize that your father, the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, is looking at you. Can you look at him? 
Maybe you, you feel insecure or, or, or ashamed. I mean, I got to tell you, I do stuff all the time that I feel bad about, that I feel ashamed of. I get frustrated with myself. I get sick of myself. I don't like myself. Sometimes I'm, I'm proud of myself, but I get stuck on, on myself. Now I want you to look up at the throne again because the, the, there's something standing on the throne. It's a, it's a slaughtered lamb. Or even more, you see a man hanging on a tree. He's hanging on a cross. And I want you to look at that cross and I want you to realize that that self you're so insecure about, that self that you're ashamed of, that self that you feel guilty about, it's nailed to the cross with him. And it dies. And now you're standing outside of a tomb. And the stone rolls away. And a man walks out of the tomb. And his eyes, they sparkle with light and he looks at you. He delights in you. He longs for you. He adores you. Look in his eyes. The little man in his eyes is who you are. It's all because of him that I am. Believe it in Jesus' name. Put off the old and put on the new. <laughs> well, in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. I mean, it really is good news.